Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the iFree podcast. I'm here today with Bob Maynard, the Chief Investment Officer of the Public Employee Retirement System of Idaho, or Percy. Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure to be back. Yes, it's your second time on the on the podcast. You were one of our first uh, uh, interviewees on, uh, on when we started uh, this podcast uh, some five years ago now, I think. Yeah. And um, But you're retiring. Yes. Yes, like I said, shy on retiring. Uh, my last day will be September 30th of this year. And, uh, and I'm sure there will be cheers as they see me leave. <laughs> cheers of joy and relief. <laughs> I doubt that. I doubt that. So it's all golfing for you after that? Uh, no, actually, I, I do golf, but uh, not not necessarily. I'm not one to spend six hours out uh, walking a golf course. Uh, although I'm a very, I get a lot. I got a lot of. I'm a value golfer. I get a lot of strokes per dollar. <laughs> Excellent, good. Um, so I thought maybe we look a little bit back on your career. Um, as you said, you've been 30 years with uh, with Percy, which is quite an, a, an achievement, I think, in these days where uh, people uh, move more quickly than uh, turnover in an international <laughs> pancake house. But um, Let's let's go back to where you started because you actually started as an attorney. Correct. And you moved to Alaska when Alaska was pretty much more a little bit of a frontier state. Oil had been discovered. It was very much a frontier state. I had graduated from the University of California at Davis, a law school. I went up there to clerk for the Alaska Chief Justice of the Alaska Supreme Court in 1975, 1976. Uh, and they had only been a state for like 19 years and Prudhoe Bay hadn't opened up yet. It, it was still, the pipeline was being completed. And so it was very much a frontier state. There was no daily communication with down South. Uh, all of our uh, uh, shows were had to be videotaped and sent up. Uh, so it was a, um, it was, it was a third world country in many respects. And I went, I was with the, uh, court for a year. Then I went over to be an assistant attorney general for the state. Um, one of my first projects was bringing telephone to every uh, uh, major village in the state because they didn't have to. Wow. If you were in a village and the mail plane wasn't coming that week, you got appendicitis, you died. And so we were putting earth stations in and satellite uh, to get telephones into every, one telephone into every village. 
And I think at one point we had about one quarter of the world satellite capability. Wow. Yeah. So back then it was uh, a different environment than uh, modern times, as they say. So what made you decide to go to Alaska? I was at, I said, University of Davis Law School. We were a new law school. I think I was in the third graduating class. So as a result, the we didn't have a lot of alumni for clerkships and, and judges. And the Alaska Supreme Court had was coming down to interview. And I, the chief of the, the faculty member who was in charge of the clerkship committee asked me if I would would uh, interview because there hadn't apparently been, I was adequately up in the class and people have, weren't interviewing. I said, but he said, I said I would. He said, but look, it, this is not just kind of going and talk. It's if they offer you the job, you take it. Uh, we need to get people up. And so I went home and talked to uh, Jane, my spouse, and we figured, ah, you're in Alaska. Cocktail party conversation for the rest of our lives. <laughs> and so we, uh, when I graduated, we, I got uh, with, a, with the chief justice, I got assigned and uh, graduated, put everything on the back of a pickup truck, and we took the ferry up to Juneau, Alaska. Wow. So that was, and we didn't leave till 17 years later, <laughs> 18 years later. Yeah, as it often goes, yeah. And I think in those early days, you got uh, involved in straight away in sort of the oil and gas cases there as well. Yes. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about it? How, how did you get involved? Well, in yeah, it was basically what happened after I got there. Uh, Alaska basically was like going to Vegas and all of a sudden three, three bars come up, just all this money started whooshing in. And I did various things as bond counsel. They just needed people to handle a lot of things. I eventually became in charge of all the oil and gas matters for the state. We had huge litigation. We had a huge amount of royalty oil. And if you remember, starting in the 80s is when OPEC started the price of oil started to really start to uh, uh, start coming on in. And I had at that point uh, between royalty litigation, we had a Trans-Alaska Pipeline litigation, other litigation. Uh, Trans-Alaska Pipeline was the largest lawsuit at that time in U.S. history. And basically the problem was, and I'll get back to why that was influential on me being in investments. The problem back then was that was the first pipeline rate case that uh, the ICC at that point, it eventually went to FERC, uh, had 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 since the 1930s. And the principle is you try to set the rates as to what the, the capital markets would have. And there was all this new theory that was coming out in the 70s uh, about capital market theory. So just great people were witnesses in our case. Ken Arrow was, was a witness of the case uh, uh, for us uh, in terms of trying to set what would the free market set as a pipeline. So that was my first real introduction into modern capital market theory was the practical application uh, to that. But anyway, so yeah, no, I there was largest lawsuits in U.S. history, a huge discovery. Uh, it was a great it was a great time to be young and be able to make mistakes. <laughs> yeah, and there is, uh, I think I read somewhere that at, at one point you realized maybe it's time to get out of these cases because <laughs> I'm a witness in my own case. I was, I was. These were like Bleak House cases. Remember Charles Dickens and Bleak House and Jarndyce? Those were those type of cases, generational type cases. And so what had happened by around the mid 80s, I was becoming a witness in my own cases because I was the one that had historical memory because people had kind of moved on and done other things. And I was 
And so as a result, it was, I w there was a number of times where I was becoming a witness. And at that point, yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm outliving my welcome in this particular <laughs> career. It was, it, but it, it, being an attorney in Alaska at that point for, this, for the state uh, was just the best job in the world, particularly for being an attorney. It yeah. was uh, lots of fun, lots of fun. Yeah, I, I imagine you get to learn a lot in a very short time as well about the industry. Yeah, about all the industries. Like I said, we started out telecommunications. I was bond counselor of the state. I was uh, I was um, uh, counsel for the governor and the legislature when we the oil price crashed and we had no money. Uh, and uh, did, did that uh, Exxon Valdez when that ran aground. I was brought. I was had just started with a permanent fund. I was brought back to head up that. Uh, uh, response um, from the legal side, from the AG side, the NTSB hearings. So it was marvelous. It was just marvelous. Yeah. So you just mentioned the Alaska Permanent Fund, uh, which was sort of your your next gig. But there's, there's, as I understand, a link between some of these big oil and gas cases and Alaska Permanent Fund in the sense that yeah. um, one of the settlements led to uh, quite a bit of funding flowing into the Permanent That's Fund. That's correct. I, well, the safety amrata Hest was a case I had. Um, and then we also got some money back from the trust. Basically, what Alaska did is uh, uh, they took our seals, they took our gold, we had nothing left. By gosh, we're not going to be here with, without oil. And so they decided to put about a third of their money that we were getting uh, from severance tax and oil royalties into this permanent fund. And one of the sources of one of the big sources was we uh, got a lot of money out of these cases I had. Uh, and it went straight into the permanent fund and it gave a good shot in the arm. Uh, I think we made it past this first few couple of billions, as a matter of fact. Uh, but anyway, so that was so this as this, we, we helped uh, build the state savings. Yeah, yeah. So I think when you moved there, um, you basically were appointed as a deputy executive director that was not necessarily an investment role, was it? When I went from the attorney general's office, at the towards the end of my, as part of my duties with the AG, besides oil and gas, I picked up the permanent fund uh, as a client. So they had when they first started the permanent fund back in the late 70s, it was the classic idea. They just put it in government bonds and they realized that inflation was going to eat that away and they should diversify. So they. Got, went into real estate. They were able to go international. They were, and I went over to help them with setting up a lot of their investment programs. Uh, it's one of those things. I can't buy my own house, mind you, but you point me to the biggest building in New York. I know how to buy that. <laughs> it's a classic uh, uh, attorney. So as a result, I had been their uh, counsel. Uh, and the retirement systems council uh, for a number of years. Uh, and so when I moved over, when they decided they wanted a deputy executive director, I went over and became deputy and I had already been doing all the legal work, uh, set up the currency program when they first stoked, because currency at that point became tradable, uh, been a relatively recent development. And so I helped set up some other investment programs. I already had been doing a lot of their real estate. So it was a somewhat administrative, uh, fair amount of investing, that sort of activity. Yeah. What was the uh, experience with the early currency program? 
that was fascinating because currency had just started floating free only about five years before. So the currency markets were brand new and how you went about uh, accessing the currency markets was and how do how did you go about deciding what you it was it was brand new stuff they really hadn't done it uh, i mean keynes i think went bankrupt in the 20s two or three times because he tried to play the currency markets uh, so it, it it was an interesting area but the, one of the best things about that was uh, Goldman set me up with Fisher Black because Fisher Bliss was in the late days. Fisher had just written his universal currency hedging uh, paper, right. and he was using the ideas in that. Uh, he and Litterman were setting up the Black Litterman model based a lot on some of the, uh, the ideas as the base because currency is basically the international cash market. Uh, it's, it's equivalent. You can either sell a deposit in uh, Germany of a euro and buy a, a three-month deposit in the U.S. in cash, or you simply do a currency uh, exchange, do a currency forward for three-month currency forward, and it's cheaper on currency. So as a result, uh, they basically assigned Fisher to me for, and I got to talk to him a couple hours a week for a year. It also happened at that point, I had been brought back to head up the state's response and we were doing the NTSB hearings on the Exxon Valdez, which was the first of the 24 hour a day CNN coverage type of thing. And Fisher was very interested in that. Fisher had Fisher was an extremely interesting personality. So I talked to him about Exxon Valdez and what was going on, and he talked to me about currency. So it, it worked out great. But he also, when you talked with him for a long period of time, you lock into a way of thinking about the capital markets. Right. And once you lock into that way of thinking, it makes it made the world a lot easier. And I probably used that more than anything else uh, over the last 30 years. Yeah. So to a degree, you sort of learned your currency trade through through Fisher Black. Oh yeah, exactly, exactly. No, it was um, um, fascinating. Like I said back then, a lot of stuff was new. Yeah. In terms of how you look at the capital markets, a lot of the access to the capital markets, a lot of the instruments, uh, and the whole attitude towards what investing was about was changing. Uh, yeah. A lot of it uh, occurred in the 60s and 70s and started to be implemented in the uh, 70s and 80s and 90s. Yeah. So is that currency program still alive? And no, I don't. Th uh, at, at the Alaska program, no. And in fact, when I came down here, I, we had a currency hedging program yeah. and I shut that down, too. Uh, it was a it's a good place to be. If you're in, if I was doing, we only do eight to 12 things. If I was doing 20 to 25, currency be back in there. Right. But it's a question of complexity. It's a question of resources versus the time uh, put in. And uh, uh, currency is a, it's the basis of all the rest of the capital markets. Like I said, it's the international cash market. But in terms of, is it worth the time and effort to set up a, a full full scale currency program? For us, it, it didn't turn out to be that way. Yeah, fair enough. Plus, uh, the, the footnotes you got to put in in your annual reports 
in terms of your exposures. It makes it said it makes it sound like you're betting three times the size of your fund on a currency hedge. It, it's yes, yes, yeah. It, it, it has other problems to do it. <laughs> so when you uh, joined uh, the Alaska Permanent Fund, uh, so you sort of illustrated how you were already involved in a lot of the investment processes from from the legal side as a legal counsel, which. I presume has a lot to do with you know the, the contractual side um, of, of these sort of transactions. How did you right. sort of get your head around the, the, the questions of asset allocation and what are the optimum weightings? Uh, um, Reading basically the mean variance model is not that complicated, right. uh, which was what was the basic tool back then. And like I said before, being an attorney. Uh, in the particular Alaska in those days, you got the kibitz on everybody else's life. So as a result, the one of the back then things were much simpler in terms of the math, in terms of the concepts that were coming forward, in terms of the underlying um, theories that were being. Now they proliferate over the last 30 years. Luckily for me, it's kind of like been one a year. So you can I could learn it <laughs> as it went forward. But getting the basics back then was not that complicated. So yeah. it was relatively easy to do asset allocation in particular. The, the equation is not that complicated, particularly if you start out with the two portfolio and the three portfolio. You can almost do it in your head. Yeah, fair enough. So when not you, that not not that many little Greek letters lying dead on their sides. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you got involved with with, with Percy, you found a fund that was quite underfunded at that stage, and I read yes. somewhere it was sixty two percent funded. Yeah, sixty sixty one percent. Yep. Did, did you know that com coming into the? Fund oh yeah, no, there was. I was warned away from coming here by a lot of people in the industry because it was seen as a disaster area. Uh, they had been with four bank trust departments in the uh, in the mid 80s. Then it had all been given to the Frank Russell Trust Company in one of their uh, basically OCIO type efforts where they charged a lot. And there were rumors of money illegal money changing hands in order to get the business. Then they had moved away from that and gone to an internal CIO. And they had three CIOs in three years, and they had all moved on so i was going to be the fourth cio in the fourth year they were terribly underfunded uh 61 their returns had been at the very very bottom once percentile hundredth percentile hundredth percentile is the worst in the tux university there were hundredth percentile across the board except for i think for the seven-year period they were like 95th so they they were seen and plus there had been a lot a lot of publicity about it so they were seen as blowing up so why did you want to go there? Well, you don't want to follow in the U.S. It's strange. You don't want to follow Vince Lombardi you, you, because when, when you talk to the board members, they're a relatively new board. They had basically and they had the right attitudes. And the legislature had passed legislation that had cleaned up a lot of the things that had caused the problems. Basically, when I came, the uh, the chair said, "Look, we just we can control our liabilities. We just." want to be in the pack get us average or relatively good institutional fund returns we don't want to be at the bottom i said i can do that you know just uh, i i can dare to be mediocre <laughs> <laughs> 
So, yeah. and, and it turned out that, man, they were. They were a good board. The, and everybody, by the way, because Percy at that time was seen as a disaster zone, there was no attempt to load on anything of a social, political. They just wanted to make sure we were out of the headlines. Yeah. And so as a result, that's a clean runway to be in. Yeah. And uh, they were just so happy that we were getting adequately good returns because they so it was relatively easy to do. Make one or two big bets, clean everything up, make it understandable. Yeah. So what did you find when you came there? Because you said you were the fourth CIA coming in in a relatively yeah. short time. And every yep. CIO brings their own ideas and their own tweaks to the portfolio. <laughs> so I can imagine it would be a bit of a hot it was. Well, not only that, it wasn't just the CIO. Remember, first of all, it had been with bank trust departments. Then it had gone to the Frank Russell Trust, and they had a lot of their in-house type managers uh, connected with their in-house brokerage. Then the four CIOs. And so basically, it wasn't so much taking my ideas and implementing. It was taking everybody else's ideas, pulling them together, and then going to the board and say, do you want to do this? Do you want to do this? We've got to simplify this thing down. First of all, get our equity fixed to where it was because it was six. It, they were a 60-40 type fund. Uh, they were only at 50-50. They had never rebalanced back after the 87 crash because of everybody changing over. Um, so basically, I set that up to 70-30 uh, at that point, which was yeah. relatively aggressive at the time. Um, and then said, okay, you have this small cap tech bet. Do you want it? Nope, throw it out. You have this bet in high yield. Do you want it? Nope, throw it out. You have this bet on emerging markets. Do you want it? Oh, you do. Okay, we'll do emerging markets. And so it's basically taking that and simplifying it down to a relatively straightforward fund that would be easily understandable, get us good institutional, medium and good institutional returns, and uh, be relatively uh, simple to understand. So we got it down to eight to eight to ten bets, yeah. uh, and that was basically it. So, what inspired sort of that philosophy of simplicity and transparency? Is is it more to be able to communicate it to the board yes. and to the stakeholders? Yes, yes. Well, also, first of all, you've heard me say it before. There are a thousand right ways to invest. The key is finding the way to the right way to invest with your particular situation. It became very, very clear that we were going to be incredibly resource restrained. Yep. And we had this mess to simply being able to explain to everybody and for us to be able to see how the portfolio was going through times of crisis. You remember back in 94, for example, since I got there, there was the great bond massacre of 94, 95. Uh, then you had little things that were probably, it was kind of calm actually for about a four, three or four year period then. But you, know, it, but you needed to be able to take this and say, everybody can see it, you can explain it. And if something went wrong, you knew it immediately. And that was primarily, it was, it was make it, and I'm always a believer that you need to be able to explain something with relatively clean mantras. It kind of guides you. So that simple, transform, uh, transparent, focused, and patient uh, gave a good guideline for as we were putting things out or looking to pull things in like REITs or whatever it may be that was, our tips was becoming the new thing at the time. So things like hedge funds, for example, when they start, that isn't, they aren't simple. No. They aren't 
transparent. <laughs> they could be focused, but you're certainly not patient. So that automatically puts a barrier up and say, we better have a really damn good, darn good reason to do this uh, if we're going to do it. So that's why it helps explain. It was um, uh, fits what we were able to do. It wasn't going to require a huge amount of resources if need be. Uh, so as a result, we knew we could get like what I had at the permanent fund, which is a big staff, do in-house investing, and have the systems in place to be able to follow that. Was it going to get that? This was Idaho. So it was it was in reaction to our particular circumstance. Yeah. So I can understand that situation at the beginning where you come in, they were at the bottom, they should just, just bring us average, you know? Yeah. But as things start to improve, how difficult was it to to stay the course of that simplicity? Because I can imagine that, you know, there's there's fads in the investment industry, and then there's yep. bubbles. There's Everybody a, gets excited. Yep. There was the technology bubble, the dot com bubble. Um, how how did you deal with sort of that environment? Did you ever get sort of pressure to get into more esoteric funds, hedge funds? Uh, not really. I mean, basically, after I was here a while, we'd had some success. I could basically uh, reverse, go into reverse maturity. I could go back to being a three-year-old saying, no, I don't want to. <laughs> there was, once we had got, once we were able to ride, remember the mid-90s turned out to be a, the 90s turned to be a tremendous time to be a 70-30, and we were higher in equities than almost anybody at the time, because uh, everybody was back at the 60% equity level. So we were all of a sudden coming in at the top of things. We were all of a sudden up close to 100% funded, and everybody and everybody who was in the legislature and the constituency still remembered when it was such a disaster. So they were, so if we weren't inclined to do it, um, there was not much push. I mean, yeah, there was people coming in saying you should do this sort of private equity. In fact, our private equity program was put in in order to have an institutional way to respond to ad hoc requests to look at investment opportunities that were local, for example. So right. there was some pressure, but not not a lot, and not to do the uh, the, the latest, greatest thing. Yeah. I remember that um, in in a previous interview we did, you mentioned that there's sort of this get together of of state uh, pension funds. Oh yeah, yes, and, and that yes. you once in a while compare strategies and see well, yeah. uh, who does who does well. And and from memory, you mentioned there that the top funds were funds that had completely different investment strategies. Yes. Now, this is a while ago. How has that played out? Today? That's that's still playing out, particularly after the last 10 years. Because remember, the best place to be in the last 10 years was the S&P 500. Everything you did beyond that simply didn't work very well. So as a result, what I'm going to be saying, it's looking better now. If you have to, if we have the next 10 years that are like the odds, it, it'll, it'll stop being true. But yes, what had happened was, and it's still probably true, well, particularly after private equity had the year it had last year, if you had, if you were a fund that was primarily liquids private equity, or you were a fund like ours, or you were a fund like uh, South Dakota's who had an in-house approach that was a small cap value, or you were a fund at the time that was like Missouri's that was uh, doing a lot of the new type of stuff, 
it turned out we all made the same amount of money just at different times. And when you, it was the key was you didn't flip back and forth. You didn't switch back and forth. You just kept with it. The key in my, and that's been true recently, although I haven't done the detailed numbers, uh, the double check is it's very tough uh, to get the returns out of uh, some funds. Canadian funds are notorious to try to figure out what they're actually doing Dan, on a year to year basis. But the fact of the matter is, is that it's keeping with it, being able to keep people on track during when a particular strategy or a particular approach to life isn't working. I had a big, and by the way, a lot of the people worldwide now are, because of Zoom, we get together an adequate amount of time. There's a big argument uh, between a number of us about the idea of what's long-term investing. And my view has turned out to be, we're not long-term investors. We use it as propaganda to help us get through short-term tough times. You know, something of ours isn't working right now. (laughs) We're long-term investors. But if you look at what long-term investing really is, if you really invested for 30 years at a time, you'd put it in small, U.S. people would put it in the S&P 500 or small cap value and come back in 30 years. The problem is, is you'd look at any really long-term investment, it can't handle the short-term volatility, the practical issues of the pressure and the people looking and, and it just, it doesn't work it. So as a result, the successful funds have been those that can ride through the three to five year periods. Sometimes, actually, if you're a value orientation, it's been about six or seven now. It's just coming back right now. Yeah. But it, it was a long dry spell. Like small cap has long dry spells. Um, emerging markets has long dry spells, dry spells. So as a result, it's being able to keep through And that's why when you looked at the five or 10, five ones that were at the top, they all did different things. It was just consistently. Yeah. Yeah. So if if you take that um, sort of approach to investing and you you look into the future, um, there seems to be thoughts around things are changing in a more structural way. And and partly that has to do with, you know, the rise of technology company that just have a different model, more intangibles. But also, we hear a lot about that companies stay private for longer, that they don't go as uh, early to the public markets, and so there's less growth in the public markets uh, as a result of that. Do you think that some of these changes might jeopardize sort of um, the, the previous models where in the 1730 fund, you have a lot of exposure to the public markets? <sighs> Never say never. I mean, there are times when there is a structural shift in the market that fundamentally changes what the appropriate measures you should look to are. Uh, The classic first one was it was true through World War II, for example, that, that the stocks gave higher dividends than government bonds. Uh, that was the number one best way, like kind of PE ratios are now, uh, best way to decide whether something was over or undervalued. It switched in the early 1950s. Some people bailed on the market and never got back in and missed the fabulous 50s. Uh, there are times where you see that sort of, uh, sort of shift in the fundamental nature of what is being in the equity market. Remember when oil was always at the top of the uh, S&P 500? Now it's tech. Now, it, So you'll get those types of shifts. Uh, whether or not that 
basically means that you should move out of equity markets, public equity markets, in favor of uh, different approaches or structures? I'm not sure. The jury's still out. I do not. There's been a number of those that have come in since the 90s and in the aughts and the last decade. I don't think any one of them right now has proven they can last uh, through troubled times. Uh, there's nothing that's proven its worth through that. And until I see that, I'm suspicious. There's a whole generation of people that are running portfolios, though, that haven't seen a shift in uh, monetary policy like we're seeing, like we may be seeing now. Yeah. Uh, the, the tide's starting to go out, and none of these people have been in low tide. And we'll see. Uh, I'm watching a number of things uh, uh, to see. I, you know, I kind of, it's going to sound bad. I kind of <laughs> hope there's a crisis between the now and when I leave, because you look at a lot of uh, it may be that what we've seen is cryptocurrency. It's just when there's excess liquidity in the system, all sorts of things work. Right. Uh, when you can do leverage, when you can do kind of kind of what look like currently uncorrelated strategies. We haven't seen a rough period since the early 2000s. We saw a rough period in 2007, 2008, but that wasn't a rough period of a drying up of liquidity. Uh, when you, liquidity dries up, it's a different environment. And I'll be interested to see what comes out of the woodworks. If a number of what you were talking about in terms of structural change survive that, then I'll start to believe in it. But by that point, I'll be sitting on a beach somewhere drinking uh, Dos Equis. <laughs> indeed, indeed. L let's go back to that, that moment when you joined Percy. I, I, I said it was an underfunded uh, uh, fund at that stage. You've brought yeah. it up to, I, I believe it's almost 100% at, at this stage. As of the start of the year, we were over 100% funded. We had dropped our discount rate down to 6.3. We had, uh, after that, we were around 100. Now, as of this morning, we were about 97. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. So we had recently uh, a forum where we had some research presented by uh, Macquarie Bank. And that basically displayed a bit of a, a concern about the underfunded status today of some of the U.S. pension yeah. funds. And basically what, it, I'll, I'll do it very shortly, but the, basically the argument was the rate of return that they need to achieve to get back to fundedness is, is not realistic to get out of just investments alone. So you're going to have to raise contributions, you're going to have to raise taxes, and that might put a damper on economic activity. But at the same time, I, I remember that I think in the, the first podcast that you, you did, you were quite um, sort of downplaying these concerns that, that yes. they had a lot more to do with the way things were calculated than real on the phone. That's right. The, the, the actuaries lie. First of all, everybody that does that doesn't understand what the actuarial uh, assumptions are and what the actuarial terms are. Uh, they don't understand what an entry-age normal actuarial system does. And the two things are the actuaries lie. Unfunded liabilities are not unfunded. Right. The present value of liabilities are not the present value of actual liabilities. So as a result, for example, uh, we're underfunded by 3%. What unfunded liabilities are, are the liabilities that are not funded by a normal cost contribution level. 
our normal cost contribution level is 14%. We charge 19. In fact, we're charging more than we need. We, even if we don't meet our actuarial liabilities, we'll still be fine at overcharging, basically. And if you look at most pension funds in the U.S., they have an amortization schedule. That means that they're funding their liabilities even without making what they're saying they have to make. So it's, 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 if you see a fund with an amortization, we're going to pay this off at the current rate if we meet our discount rate. We're going to pay it off uh, in 20 years. They're funded. Yeah. They're, 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 you know, so I mean, so the, the, the idea of what an unfunded liability is, is completely misunderstood. Secondly, the present value of liabilities is not the present value of current liabilities. We assume under entry age accounting that the amount we're going to have to pay out in benefits is the ending salary of the current people that are uh, in our system. And the ending salary is going to be about double what it is now. So we're assuming right now they're making twice as much as they're making now. What that means is if we shut off the system today and just said, okay, what are the actual liabilities when these people actually retire? We'd be like 140, 150% funded. So we're funding more than we need to, and we're making people pay in more than what the normal cost uh, requires. And for those two reasons, once you take that into the account, uh, I think well, that's why Pew, for example, who is the major people in the U.S., who says what's healthy or not, that's why they say 80% funded status is a healthy status right? because of those two factors. So, so just on the top of my head, I, I believe that one of the, the, the reasons behind it as well was that some funds have been increasing their contributions quite yes. dramatically. And I think there was one example where they increased it by 400% of a, a, a yeah. relatively short period. So that's yeah. not related to the funded status. Well, no, it is. It is. There are pension funds that are in trouble. There are pension funds where the legislature have played games for years right. on funding the pension fund and not paying their contributions. And it's the ones with and said building after ballparks in their states. So as a result, all of us, all of us on the investment side over the last 30 years, 20 to 30 to 40, have made 9% or so. But the ones that are in trouble, like New Jersey, like Kentucky, like Illinois, or some of the Illinois, most of the Illinois systems, it wasn't because they weren't making enough money. They weren't funding the pension system. They weren't paying their contribution rates. And as a result, those are the ones that all of a sudden had to jump their contribution rates. California is a class. Also, some of the actuaries in California, when you had the great 90s returns, they sat there and said, no, well, now you have a surplus. You cut your contribution rate below normal cost. So University of California example, dropped their contribution rate to zero. The people in the counties dropped their contribution rates way below normal cost. So when things reversed in the aughts, they all of a sudden were in a position, okay, legislature, raise the contribution rates. And the legislature said, no, we're not going to. Uh, 
And so all of a sudden they, they put off the problem. And yeah, some of them had to raise it 400%. Um, uh, percent. As a practical matter, so if you are going to retire with around 80% of your salary, you have to, as a level amount, make put away about a third of your salary every working year, every working year, and make three to four percent above inflation. Four is probably about right. If you do that, I don't care what the system is, DC, DB, you'll be fine. If you do less than that, you won't. Right. Uh, and so as a result, our people are in Social Security, we they pay around 20%, 19 and change. Plus they put 12% in for social security between employer and employer. That's 31% a year. Yeah. If you do that for 30 years, you make 4% real, then we can pay you 80 to 100% of your uh, of your ending salary uh, and t- as long as you die on time. <laughs> Fair enough. So so does that mean that the defined uh, benefits system can be saved because it looks like the whole world is moving more to a defined contribution and of course in australia we we pretty much you, have yeah you I, I remember when you used to have db and how you changed to dc and now you guys are still having troubles to how you convert and there's a whole bunch of problems that come with dc systems and whether or not you're going to have enough for those people to if mortality keeps uh, uh rising um step back you're starting a retirement system for the blank piece of paper You have the same people making the same amount of money who are going to be living the same amount of life and you have the same capital markets. The two are, can be made equivalent. There's a few subsequent, but there's no real difference. The problem is, is once you go down the DB plan or the DC plan, it's like taking off on two unicycles. You can't switch seats. Uh, because there's a lot of cross subsidies in the DB plants. Uh, the yeah, uh, the, a lot of the employers think that they are taking on more risk and they want to shift the risk to the participants. So they go to a DC, but for the state of Idaho, the DB plan has probably been the biggest profit center they've had over the last 30 years. Right, because everything was set up to make seven to eight percent and you were going to be fine. We made now over nine. Where did those extra billions go? Went right in the state's pockets. Right. I mean, I, I'd, be, I'd, I'd be much better off if they'd have put my contributions and the employer's contributions in my plan, and I got that money, then my, uh, then my uh, defined benefit's going to be. So yeah, the states, uh, the employers have taken the risks. Uh, they got the returns, and now they're trying to switch the risk back to the participants. Yeah. yeah. So let's 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 take a bit of a, a high level view. It's been uh, sure. thirty years in investing. Um, one of the things we like to ask people: Can you give us an example of uh, one of your best investment decisions and one of your worst? Uh, no. <laughs> all, all of them, all, all of them have been uh, fun. Uh, when I look back on things that didn't work out, yeah. Well, one of the things that worked out was tips back in the '90s. But one of the things that didn't work out was real estate uh, for a period of time. Uh, we had gone into a partnership with some people that didn't work out. The wrong place, wrong time. And I looked. The thing is, everything that hasn't worked out 
over the years. I go back and my heart beats just as fast. I mean, you go back and say, well, what, what should I have seen? What should we have seen? What did, and you go back and go, no, we, I'd make that same darn decision again, uh, because you see why. Uh, so if you say mistakes, things, uh, there are things that didn't work out, but you know, this is the capital markets. Yeah, Half yeah. the, you know, divert, uh, being diversified means always saying you're sorry somewhere. Yeah. So you look back at it as we made the right decision with the information we had at that particular time. And not only that, if I went back there, I, the, the world does revolve around you. It's like washing your car. It's going to rain. Well, they, it, it could have been sunny and we would have made a fortune. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, I, it's, 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 it's the unexpected, uh, uh, things always knock someone for a loop. Yeah. So if you take a bit of like, say, a mentoring view on investing and you have new kids coming into the industry, are there any sort of learnings over the years that you say, okay, I, I wish I would have known that coming into the industry? I say a lot of it's attitude. You've heard me say before that uh, whenever I get a bright idea, I go to a dark room, lay down and wait for the feeling to pass. That, that attitude has served me well over a long period of time that um, any new idea is exciting. There are more new ideas and it's most and it, the funnest part of the business is getting into an investment. The hardest part is working your way out of when that investment doesn't work out. Like I was saying, real estate, co-mingled funds in the early 90s. I'm never going to be doing a co-mingled blind fund in real estate again. That you say mistakes. Because the fact of the matter is getting into it, always great people, great ideas. They had a successful track record. But 10 years or 12 years from then, all the people have turned over. And when something goes wrong, I'm in a bunch of people like me. I don't, the last person I want to be in a room to work something out is someone like me. I'm just whining. No, I don't want to, I don't know. you know, I, so it's, it's those types of, uh, uh, if the idea is it'll be a good one, it'll be a good one when you come out of the dark room after you've taken a nap. The excitement of something new, it takes a while to get over that, to be able to say, do I really have to do this now? Uh, the second one is what we were saying earlier, uh, uh, read the room, understand where, where you are, what the capabilities are, what may work for someone else, another fund may not work in your situation uh, because you don't have the resources, you don't have the constituency, uh, you don't have the liquidity, uh, things of that nature. Uh, so I think really fitting the right way of investing or what you're trying to do with your investment into your particular situation is key and being able to explain it. I mean, the two things in my industry has always been, you got to do a good job and you got to have people think you're doing a good job <laughs> and, you know, when in doubt, take the second. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I think I read somewhere that you also, um, uh, we're in the habit of of listening into other board meetings of oh of yeah other funds. Um, yeah, what were some of the things that you were looking there? It, it, was it just to keep a finger on the pulse, or well, one finger on the pulse. Well, one they're they're all friends, but secondly, they're all doing different things than we are. I mean, we don't do hedge funds. I'd love to look at what 
when people are doing hedge funds, what's coming up? What's, what's the problems? What are the issues? Uh, and then seeing how the presentations are, uh, there's great material at these board meetings. If you watch CalPERS, you watch Cal's, watching ailment stuff over the decades, I've learned more from that than from my own fund. Right. Uh, just all the stuff that they look at I me. Mean, he's the best CIO on the planet as far as I'm concerned. But, the, but you know, just watching them work through uh, stuff, uh, uh, Missouri, uh, heck, uh, Steve Sexauer down in San Diego County, stunning stuff every, every month. So watching other boards, watching the materials that are presented, watching the managers and the people that are coming. Alaska Permanent Fund, for example, has tremendous material. I keep watching them because obviously there's there's the whole thing. So, you know, but any any of those are uh, stunningly well. New York does a great job. Uh, Britt Harris is present. Uh, I haven't watched too much of, uh, uh, but when he's at Texas Teachers, great stuff. So, I mean... You get to you get to watch you get to watch stuff without having to do the work for it. <laughs> yeah, because that was my next question. You look at all these other funds and see what they're doing. You've been at Percy for thirty years. Um, yep. In today's world, that is unheard of. Did you never <laughs> had the idea? Well, maybe I'm going to have a look at another fund and uh, see. Well, if- I, I, oh, in terms of the job. Yeah. It used to be my practice to go out for a search once every five to six years. Uh, and usually I'd get in the finals and then I'd make the decision, do I want to continue on? Cause it once you actually, it, cause it makes you understand what you've got and maybe what you want in the job you have now. Yeah. Uh, and as a result, um, usually if I'm one of the final two or three before I go in, make sure that, and if usually there was something that was, would goof it up. But yeah, no, I'd say always, you know, take take a look every once in a while. You can't, you know, be satisfied. You've you've got to always kind of double check what you're doing, because uh, yeah. you I'm I, I'm the easiest person to fool, and in particular if I'm the one trying to do the fooling. <laughs> Fair enough. So you're retiring on I think you said the 30th of September. Um, Correct. What's in store? Are you completely withdrawing from the industry, or are you keeping an eye on things? All my friends are there, but I have no plans. I haven't talked to anybody. Don't plan to talk to anybody. Uh, like I said, player, but I plan to do what I'm do do best, which is nothing. <laughs> uh, I, I, one of the best parts of the uh, pandemic has been I've been able to work from home, and I was always worried that Jane, my spouse, would find my constant presence to be uh, less than uh, perfect, as they say, a better or worse, but not for lunch. Well, I found out Jan can handle me for lunch. So my first number of months is whatever she wants to do, I'm doing. So working from home was sort of a pre-retirement, a bit of a test run. I've been practicing for retirement for years. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough, Bob. Well, thank you so much for this interview. It's always a pleasure to speak with you and uh, all the best with your retirement. Are, are you still putting putting on um a, a con- you see you putting on conferences still? Yes. Some of the best conferences I remember were a few that you put on. Uh, they were just wonderful. So oh, thank uh, you. Uh, congratulations on all that and all the all the best of success. Thank you very much for that, and you too. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www dot i3 dash invest dot com thank you very much